0: well welcome everybody and particularly to those who are online and i speak directly to our new little baby video camera over here we're delighted to see you and hope that you can see and join in everything that we're doing here in what is our new venue for our evening services Uh, perhaps i should just say particularly to any who may not recognize me that i am a member of the preaching team and count myself honored to be able to still come up and stand here and talk from time to time. A word of prayer before we start. Lord God Almighty, may every word that is spoken and every word that is heard and every thought that passes through our minds tonight be pleasing to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Right now we start. We're going to play for a few minutes, a few seconds, university challenge. <laughs> so, therefore, ah, I said drink here. St Andrews University. This is your starter for 10, 10. Where is this? The words Printed over the door of a building, the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Psalm 111, verse 2, in a rather archaic English version, over what is fairly obviously, it looks like, a modern building. Where are we? Medical sciences building? Uh, Not St. Andrew's at all. (laughs) Yes, the Cavendish Laboratory, the new Cavendish physics laboratory in Cambridge. And we might inquire, how did those words come to be over the door of a physics laboratory? For this, we have to go back to about 100 years, 150 years ago, uh, to when the first Cavendish Laboratory was built. And that was built, and its first director was James Clark Maxwell, the greatest Scottish scientist there has ever been, without exception. It was James Clerk Maxwell who joined together 19th century electricity with 19th century magnetism to show that electromagnetic waves could actually exist. Without Maxwell, there would be no radio, no TV, no computers, no iPods, no iPads, no iPhones, no Wi-Fi, no sat no 21st century as we know it. James Clerk Maxwell was a devout Christian, and as director of this first Cavendish laboratory, he decided to put this quotation, Psalm 111, verse 2, over the door of the building. And the words were in Latin, and the typeface was absolutely unreadable. (laughs) A hundred years later, when the new building was in planning, a Christian PhD student suggested that the same words be used again and put over the doors of the new building. The planning committee agreed, and there they are, the Bible quotation over the door of a modern physics laboratory, easy for everybody to read. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Maxwell took the study of science to be a proper activity for Christians. He wrote this, I think Christians whose minds are scientific are bound to study science, that their full view of the glory of God may be as extensive as their being is capable. And this is a view that all science students who are Christians can hold without compromising their faith in the slightest. And I, as a physicist, want to share with you tonight some of the things in the universe that speak to me of the glory of God. Earlier this year, I was taking one of my exercise walks, as befits a man of my age. And I was coming down Lindsay Garden, just crossing Learmanth Place, when I looked up and I saw it, a complete double rainbow. Rainbows where you see them are often fairly faint. But this rainbow was no wimp of a double rainbow like we have here. It had a full, complete brilliance from horizon to horizon. The second bow was as bright as the first. And I wondered how this could ever be, because I had never seen anything like that in my life before. And I looked around to see what the conditions were. I was facing roughly north. The sun was behind me. And the sky ahead of me was dark grey, absolutely thick with rain from horizon to horizon, a complete uniform dark grey full of rain. And so the conditions were ideal, and it was a wonder to behold. And I just stood there for a few moments and marvelled, and I thanked God, And then a cloud drifted over the sun and the rainbows faded away. And I didn't have a camera with me to take a picture, I'm afraid to say. Incidentally, next slide, have you noticed the reversal of colours? The sunlight enters the raindrop and reflects from the back surface out again. And for the lower bow, it comes out after one reflection inside the raindrop. For the upper bow, it comes back after two reflections inside the raindrop. And so this means that we see the colours in the upper bow reversed. For the lower bow, the red is at the top and the blue, the violet, is at the bottom. For the upper bow, you can just see it. The red is at the top, the bottom, and the blue is at the top. The second reflection flips the colours round. Well, tonight I just want to try to introduce to you three wonders tonight to share with you. And the first is I want to try to convey the wonder of how vast the universe is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to make a model of the solar system. Now, if this was a children's talk, I would have all the parts here, but I don't have any of the parts. So you being an adult, adult audience will just have to keep track of everything that goes on. <laughs> so <clears throat> we're going to start off with the sun. And the sun is a balloon, An orange balloon about so big between my hands okay that's the scale that we're going to work to that is the sun and then we're going to amass the parts we need for the planets and we're going to need two tomatoes (laughs) two grapes and four peas and we're going to take two of the peas and cut them in half so off we go here's the sun and it's a balloon about a foot across something like this between my hands the planet mercury is a half P, and we put down that on the carpet, just a little way beyond this little pillar, which is holding up the roof of this fellowship room here. We put half a P on the ground there. That is the planet Mercury. Next, we take a whole P for the planet Venus, and we put that over just by the door where you came in tonight. Then we have the Earth, that's another whole P, and we put that on the pavement outside uh, near the road where we all gather to talk when the weather's fine after a service. The next planet is Mars, and for this we take a half pea and we put that half pea on the other side of the road, on the pavement there at this end of Bell Street. Then we get on to the big planets. Jupiter was a monstrous planet, and for that we take a tomato. <laughs> and we put a tomato at the farther end of Bell Street. And then the next, set, next planet is Saturn, which is a little bit smaller than Jupiter. And we take that and we go up to the end of Greyfriars Gardens and we put, our, put Saturn down a tomato on the end of Greyfriars Gardens. Well, at this point, uh, we have to change our axis a bit because I now want to take us walking out along the West Sands Road. And so the next planet we have to place is Uranus. And for this, we're going to use one of our grapes. We're going to put that down on the ground at this end of the uh, West Sands Road. Then halfway along the West Sands Road, we take our second grape and we put that down on the ground. And that is the planet Neptune. And then we walk up to the very end of the West Sands Road. And we put down a half pea there. And that is the planet Pluto. That's the scale of the model of the solar system we have made. And you may ask, well, where is the nearest star to us? Where is the nearest star to the solar system? Well, what we do is we take a second balloon, we put it in an envelope, we post it to a friend in Hong Kong, and we ask them to blow it up for us. (laughs) (laughs) On the scale of our model, the nearest star to us is 8,000 miles away. The universe is truly a vast and immense place. The light from the moon takes about one second to reach us. The light from the sun takes about eight minutes to reach us. The light from Pluto takes five and a half hours to reach us. And from our nearest star, Proxima Centauri, which you now remember is over in Hong Hong Kong, the light from that nearest star, takes five years to reach us. And so what we need to understand that when we look at objects in the distant sky, we are not looking also just through immense distances. We are looking back through immense times. If we look through a telescope at the planet Pluto, we don't see it as it is now, this moment. We see it as it was five and a half hours ago. When we look at that nearest star, Proxima Centauri, we don't see it as it is now. We see it as it was five years ago. And so as we go farther and farther out into the universe, we are going farther and farther back in time, going back through countless ages. It's really quite extraordinary. That's my first wonder. I have three wonders tonight for us. The second wonder, in the book of Genesis, we read that God said to Abraham one night, come outside from your tent a moment. I want to show you something. So Abraham got up and went out from his tent in the darkness, leaving just his little olive oil lamp burning inside his tent. And he looked up and this is roughly what he saw. He saw the Milky Way, not in that detail, but nevertheless, he saw something like that, a huge expanse of stars across the sky, our neighborhood galaxy of which we are part, which we hardly ever see because of all the streetlights round about us. In fact, you have to go to a really darkened area, and there are dark uh, spaces, areas Designated in the United Kingdom where they try to keep the light level very, very low indeed so that people can look up and see the stars in more detail. And that's our galaxy. Astronomers have asked what is at the centre of the galaxy? And for a long time astronomers have wondered whether there's a thing called a black hole at the centre of the galaxy. Well, what is a black hole this is going to be the black hole in about five lines <laughs> if you take an average star which is our sun there are two forces acting within the sun there is the force of its own gravity tending to pull it inwards and there is the what we call the radiation pressure acting outwards now the idea of radiation pressure is very strange to us if we look at a light bulb we don't feel a pressure, a force on our faces when we look at that light. But the sun consists of about uh, a 1,000 million light bulbs, all shining at the same time. And the radiation pressure generated by all those light bulbs, it's a nuclear reaction, the same that takes place inside a hydrogen bomb going on. That radiation pressure Balances the gravitational pressure, and that really determines the size that the sun is. And at the moment in this uh, in our sun's life, those two pressures <coughs> balance up. Thank you. There's the slide together. You can see there a picture of how the two forces act. Now there's a simple rule of the universe which applies to stars, doesn't apply to everything, doesn't apply, for instance, to what goes on in our bloodstreams but applies to stars. And the simple rule is this. In the end, gravity always wins. In the end, gravity always wins. And this is particularly bad news for big stars, much larger than our sun, because sometimes what happens is that a big star starts collapsing under its own gravity. And what then happens depends really on how big it is. If this collapse of a big star is very sudden, the star gets suddenly compressed very, very quickly. The temperature at its centre absolutely shoots up and the result is a huge explosion, what we call a supernova. A supernova that can be so bright when they happen that they outshine the rest of the stars in the galaxy altogether. It's absolutely enormous. Now, the next slide shows us a supernova that was actually seen in daylight in the year 1054. And there are amazed medieval people looking up at this star, which suddenly shines in in the broad daylight. This was a supernova. They're hardly ever that bright. This one was carefully recorded by Chinese astronomers, and those early astronomical records of the Chinese observers are absolutely priceless in the study of astronomy today. Well, after the explosion, the remnant of the star, what's what's left over after the explosion, collapses in on itself, down under its own gravity, to a very small core. And the gravity is so strong around it that, in fact, nothing can escape from it. Not even light. So we can't even see it anymore. It's become invisible. It's become a black hole. And uh, because its gravity is so strong, anything coming too close gets sucked into it and disappears from sight forever. So a black hole can grow and grow and become so big and its gravity is so strong that it can even affect the movement of other stars nearby. And this is what we think is going on at the very centre of our own galaxy. But to see this, we need... A very large telescope and this is uh, these are the very large (coughs) telescopes at the European Southern Observatory Upper Mountain in Chile where it's very suitable because the altitude helps and the air is very dry at that point it's it's a desert indeed there are in fact four telescopes which you can see in the picture there each has a mirror which is eight meters across And eight metres is approximately the width of this room. So if you can think of a mirror as the the width of this room, and that is it, with this huge uh, scaffolding of structure underneath in order to support this enormous weight. And we are looking sort of sideways across the mirror as it's horizontal in that picture. And now what we're going to do is... What they did then at this point, with these telescopes, or with at least one of them, they took pictures of the stars at the centre of the galaxy over quite a long period of time and they compared the photographs very carefully and they discovered that some of the stars are on the move. And now we're going to have a look at the first video clip. Now I'll talk about it it as it appears on the screen. We're now going into the centre of the Milky Way, into the centre of our galaxy. And this, from photographs that have been taken, is how it builds up. And we're going in farther and farther. We still have a long way to go. Seems to be endless, but we're not there yet. Clouds of stars emerge. Coming a bit closer to the center now. That's the center coming up. And now, this is the video clip made from, put together from photographs. And you can begin to see that the stars are going round something that we can't see. That's what those photographs showed. In a little while, this this is these results, which were obtained in the year 2021. We've got the date at the bottom there, and now we've been able to plot the paths of at least two of those stars in some detail. And you can see, that they are going round something. Actually, the position of the black hole is marked in its course Sagittarius A star. But it's from this that we can now deduce that there is indeed this enormous black hole at the the middle of the galaxy. And finally, coming right up to date now, we have a picture. And this is actually a picture of the black hole itself. Well, not the black hole is the middle of the donut. The question is, what is that orange smudge which is around the donut? Well, this was a picture built up from the uh, readings, the observations taken by eight radio telescopes, across the Earth, including, if you look at the picture on the left, one at the South Pole, and the other ones, one in Spain, several in the United States, and and there are two others around the other side of the Earth that took these. And all these radio telescopes were linked together synchronously, and what this enabled them to do, because what we're looking at is not an orange glow that is actually orange, but we are now far into the infrared, and the interstellar gas that surrounds the black hole is being ionized and has started to glow in the infrared at a wavelength of about 7 millimeters to those who know these things. And so what we're seeing is this. This took an enormous amount of work to do to inter- because what has been done here is that effectively all the signals collected by these radio telescopes over a short period of time have been synchronized and put together digitally and the amount of data that was required to do this it comes to approximately four petabytes now i don't know how many people know what a petabyte is but we're probably all familiar with gigabytes we know that the phones in our memories have uh, memories in our phones have a certain number of gigabytes in them or we know that we are picking up Uh, television signals according to a bandwidth going up to a certain number of gigabytes a petabyte is a million gigabytes and in order to draw all this information together the internet could not handle it it was too much so what was done for all these radio telescopes is they recorded on their data onto hard disks And then the hard disks were taken by air, by aeroplane, all to a central point. And then this was all integrated together uh, into the picture that we have today. And it took a considerable amount of time to do this. So there we have it. That's our second wonder. It's a black hole at the centre of the universe. The third and final wonder I want to talk to you about is much, much farther away. I want to talk a bit about gravitational waves. Now, going back to Maxwell for a moment, the basic idea is really quite easy. Going back to Maxwell for a moment, he devised this, what, he, what we now call his electromagnetic theory, which predicted light waves, radio waves, and we know all about these, and we use radio waves and signals like radio waves all the time, for radio, television, for communicating with satellites and all sorts of things like this. We can detect radio waves easily. Well, Maxwell did that in about 1865, and that is what makes him so famous, makes him one of the greatest scientists of all time. I can tell you a little story. Somebody asked Einstein once, do you think that you stood upon the shoulders of Isaac Newton? No, he replied, I stood on the shoulders of Maxwell. In about 50 years later, in 1916, <coughs> Einstein produced what we call his general theory of relativity. And that showed that the same sort of thing could happen as as electric charges oscillate, Maxwell showed, they emit radio waves. Gravitational, gravitational objects, Einstein showed, heavy masses, also when they rotate, when they move, when they oscillate, they emit gravitational waves at the speed of light, Einstein predicted. Now, Maxwell's waves are now fairly easy to detect. We use them every time we turn on the television every day. Even though the initial experiments to show that Maxwell was right were quite hard. But Einstein was able to work out how big these gravitational waves should be. And the answer is that they are so incredibly tiny so incredibly small that for a long time people thought, well, we're never going to be able to detect anything as small as this. Well, this is what was true until the 21st century. And now the answer is, can we now detect gravitational waves? And in the 21st century, the answer is yes. And our next slide shows us what a gravitational wave detector looks like. There are two long tubes. This is an aerial view of an installation on the ground. There are two long tubes at right angles to each other, forming an L shape on the ground. Each tube is about two and a half miles long. And there's a vacuum inside each tube. Up and down the tube travel laser beams, and the laser beams are then combined together where the tubes meet at the hub of the L, and there's a little building at the bottom there, which is where all all the work is done. And from when a gravitational wave comes by, one of those arms of the L changes its length incredibly slightly, And for those who know atomic dimensions, by only the fraction of the width of an atomic nucleus, incredibly, incredibly small. So the whole system has to be incredibly sensitive. Well, then the problem is that if this whole system is incredibly sensitive, they're going to pick up all sorts of bogus signals. And in fact, when my son was visiting America uh, as part of his work a few years ago, He actually got was able to visit one of the places in the United States where they were building one of these instruments and testing them and what they were arranging to do was for other scientists who had nothing to do with the project nothing to do with the instrument at all to contrive to send them bogus signals some of which they told them were coming and some of which they didn't tell them were coming to see if the teams could detect bogus signals that were coming in, which might be mistaken for gravitational waves if they made a false interpretation. Well, it turns out that these signals are so small that the only way to detect them is if you have two detectors in different places which will detect the same signal at the same time. And on the 14th of September 2015, seven years ago, Bingo! It happened. Two detectors, one in the northwest of the United States in Washington State and the other in the southeast of the United States in Louisiana, detected the same signal at the same time. And after checking everything very carefully, the scientists went public on the 11th of, on the 11th of February 2016 and the next slide shows us this, and it made the front page of the Scotsman, and the small print at the bottom reads, gravitational waves find hailed as the scientific breakthrough of the century. And the reason why the Scotsman made such a fuss about it is that a team in Glasgow University was one of the teams that uh, it existed in, in dealing with and interpreting the signal that was obtained. So the Glasgow University got the credit. What did this signal look like? What did this signal sound like? And I have to be very, very quiet because there's a noise here and this video only lasts 12 seconds. That's it a little blurb of sound lasting about a tenth of a second arriving at three o'clock in the morning. And in this way, the heavens declare the glory of God. What caused this immense gravitational wave producing such a tiny effect here? What caused it? And this is the interpretation, the next slide shows us, The thought is that it was produced by two black holes circling each other and being drawn closer and closer together at enormous speed and spinning round faster and faster and faster under their (coughs) combined gravitational fields until they finally merge into one new gravitational hole, big black hole, and that marks the end of the signal. And... This then produced an enormous explosion. And it's thought that this took place something like about a billion years ago. An enormous gravitational wave started to spread out at the speed of light through the universe until its final, final, faint, faint signal reached us about a billion years later. It was so weak that only fantastic gravitational wave detectors could to capture it what was perhaps rather unusual was that although uh, these two detectors were able to show that this event had happened they didn't know where it had happened because uh, they, they were trying to they were only had two points where this signal was detected at two different places and that is not enough to get a triangulation on where the object comes so in other words they don't know where this happened did it happen up here or up there or down there nobody has any idea what you need is more gravitational detectors and more are being built. There is one, I believe, now operational in Italy. There is one being built in India. There is another one being built in Japan and there may be other ones elsewhere as well. How do all these wonders make you feel, make me feel? Small, insignificant... One French scientist, a very strong humanist and atheist, put it like this. He said that humanity is no more than a bunch of gypsies squatting on the edge of the universe. I don't think so. Because God the Lord has created us with curiosity, with the desire and the ability to explore his creation, to think up the theories to build the fantastic instruments to test these theories out and to make new discoveries. These wonders, black holes, gravitational waves, these things that I've talked about now have all been discovered in the last 10 years. Is there yet more to discover? I'm sure that there is. The latest thing that they're on about now is what is called dark matter, but we won't go there tonight. (laughs) But it was well expressed, the opportunity and the hope was well expressed in the, towards the end of the last century by the physicist Richard Feynman, who put it in these terms, applying to any sort of science, there is a continually expanding frontier of ignorance, which I think is a really good way of putting it. And while, when I personally contemplate these wonders and try to understand them, then I am filled with excitement and wonder at the glory of God.